Good morning, church. Great to see all of you. And uh, I know he's not going to like me doing this, but Pastor Steve, it is so great to see you uh, here with us this morning. Uh, what a joy it is. Hey, could we just uh, take a moment? Uh, you know, the person next to you, behind you, just wave hi awkwardly. Oh, yeah, it's awkward. Beautiful. Wonderful. Uh, if you could take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John 19. John 19, you know, if you're kind of joining us for the first time, really want to welcome you to our church, uh, we are currently in a series called Radically Ordinary, uh, and if you're kind of wondering, you know, wh- what is this all about, um, you know, I-, I think the Christian faith, we, we have a way today, 21st century uh, American Christians, we have a way of kind of complicating things uh, by branding and trying to find the latest cool thing. And often we, we have a, a tendency to overcomplicate uh, Christian discipleship so that we either want to pursue and live out our Christian calling simply in the realm of something that's ordinary or what, uh, in, in faithfulness, or we think that's somehow different from the other polarity and opposite extreme of the more radical and spectacular faith. But what we determined last year was that maybe these are false categories according to the life that Jesus lived because the greatest category that we're actually called to is the higher principles of loving God and loving other people. And that's what we're ultimately ushered into and invited to in our salvation. And we know this because Jesus, whether he lived 30 years in the mundane as a carpenter's son and sibling, or whether he was in the three years of miraculous ministry, uh, the father was able to declare all of it uh, pleasing because... uh, Our wiring and our design is that we walk into loving God, loving others as we delight in the Father and surrender to him uh, daily. And so that's kind of where we've been. And, you know, for those of you who are even new, you might just kind of be nodding along saying like, yeah, I don't have a problem with that. That sounds all about good and right and true. But here's where it gets difficult. It gets difficult when the rubber meets the road of reality. This gets difficult in the everyday in the 24-7, and here's why. Because we all have passions that don't all line up with our responsibilities. See, what I mean is we, we can say amen to loving God. We can say amen to loving one another, but the difficulty is that for some of us, we have these kind of inherent passions in, in terms of how we really want to live that out. I mean, some of us, we, we're local church people. We love serving the local church. Like, that's our passion. It's your wiring. It's your leaning. Others of us, we have a big heart for overseeing missions. That's your natural wiring. That's what you naturally gravitate towards. Some of us, we are incredible in terms of discipling our children in the home. Like, that's your thing. Some of us, we have a heart for the city uh, and reaching our neighborhoods And hey, what's going on beyond the four walls of a church building? That's what we're really into. And so that's... Uh, predominantly the sphere where we're drawn to in terms of loving God and loving other people. But the reality is uh, we all have these responsibilities that almost seem to hinder and limit and put a cap on our ceiling for how we feel like we can pursue those passions. Also, sure, I mean, we would love to serve the church more But we also, uh, some of us, we we have aging parents. And and that's a responsibility. It it is tough. You love your parents. You love your mom or dad. But but there's a a difficulty there 
where, where you, you want to serve more and pursue your passion, but you, you also want to be a good son or a daughter. Others of us, we just have really young kids, and it is an extremely complex time of life. And so you're trying to navigate, how do I put my passion and these responsibilities together? Some of us, we work a nine to five. Some of us, a nine and nine. And so we're like, how do we put these things together? What do we do when it seems like our passions and our responsibilities, they actually collide in a way where in terms of loving God and loving other people, we almost feel like there are these hindrances that almost limit us in terms of how we want to love God and love others in certain spheres that we're really drawn to and attracted to. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you're like, wow, I totally get that tension. I, I really feel that. I think there's someone in the Bible that will sympathize and empathize with your uh, circumstance. And so we're going to go right into the text in John chapter 19, verse 17. Here we go. God's word reads, and so they took Jesus and Jesus went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified Jesus and with him two others one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I'm the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts, one part for each, so, each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in, many piece from, uh, in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it, it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And so the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then Jesus said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her home uh, to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, and so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, the Gospel of John, uh, it's a fascinating gospel. It is unique to the other three accounts uh, of Jesus because it really highlights Christ's divinity, his divine nature. And so if you've kind of, uh, you know, read John, you kind of know, wow, Jesus is portrayed in a really different way. In fact, in the prologue, in the beginning of John's book, uh, it kind of details and describes Jesus as the word, the divine logos of God, the second eternally existing triune member, a member of the triune God. But we know that this God uh, became flesh and he dwelt among us. And so John details the account of Christ's life by creating a skeletal structure of the book, by laying seven miraculous signs. But scholars who really know John inside and out, what they would say is all the signs, all the accounts in the Gospel of John, they're really leading to, to one certain thing. And here's what the scholars call it. They call it, they, they call it the hour of Christ's glory. 
that the Gospel of John is driving the narrative through all the seven signs to the hour of his glory. And pretty much what what every uh, commentator and scholar would say about the hour of glory is that the hour of glory is the time when he dies for sins on the cross. And so the passage that we just read, we're kind of parachuting into the text. And so we don't really feel the drama. But if you actually go from the beginning and read it all the way through, you would find that this is kind of the build. This is the climax point of John. In fact, we know this in what we directly just read uh, because of three uh, interesting things. Number one, uh, it shows the uniqueness of Jesus by declaring to be the king of the Jews in universal language, in Latin, in Aramaic, in Greek. Additionally, as Jesus is dying, he's actually fulfilling scripture. The Old Testament scriptures, there's two accounts of that. And thirdly, as he's dying, unique to the Gospel of John is that wonderful, victorious declaration to telestai, or it is accomplished, it is finished. And so here we're at the culmination of the hour of glory. But you know what's often forgotten and skimmed over in this fascinating chapter of the hour of glory? It is a small little moment and segment where Jesus, as he's dying and bleeding on the cross, sees his mother and he takes care of her and he ensures her future. We, we, we often skim over that. It's remarkable because Mary at this time is probably in her late 40s. She's a widow. She probably does not have stable income on her own. So first century woman, Widow, this is not a a, a good situation for her. And yet here you have Jesus fulfilling his cultural obligations as the oldest son for his mom. But here you also have him fulfilling the Mosaic law to death, honoring his mother to his very last dying breath. And so what you have is Mary, who's beholding her broken, bleeding son. And she cannot even, she does not even have the emotional bandwidth to process her future. But her son secures her future on her behalf. It is a beautiful, calm, still moment in the swirling narrative of the hour of glory. But you know who's humorously forgotten in this text? The disciple who had to take Jesus' mom home. The one Jesus loved, John. No one thinks about him. He's forgotten completely. Can we just talk about John for a little bit? Can we agree that he's had a rough week? Number one, uh, the the Messiah that he's been following around for about three years, uh, he had no clue coming into the week that he was going to be crucified. So that's, that's that's a slight interruption of the week. And then secondly, when he's there beholding this huge moment in history, the hour of glory, suddenly he has to take Jesus' mom home. In fact, in the text, it says that from that hour, he took her home. So I don't know if you've ever been interrupted in life, but this is, this is when you have to take someone's mom home, that, that's an interruption. That's an interesting interruption. Now, 
Here's what we see happening in, in redemptive narrative soon after. Jesus resurrects from the dead, ascends into heaven. Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls. We find Peter preaching the gospel. And John is there at Pentecost. That's Acts 2. Acts 3 and 4, we find Peter and John, they pray over and heal a paralyzed man. They're arrested, questioned, and they resist the authorities. John is there. You skip over to Acts chapter 8. The Samaritan believers, they believe the, Jesus, uh, they believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. But John goes up with Peter to pray over them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And then John kind of disappears from Acts. Like if you actually read the entire book of Acts, the last time that you will see John is actually after chapter eight, he's gone. If you read Acts, you find that Peter is the dominant player in, in Acts. Then soon after you see Paul kind of taking, you know, this guy named Paul, thank you very much. He takes over the book of Acts. John, nowhere to be found. Nowhere. He's totally gone. In fact, I love what this one Bible encyclopedia has to say about John. It says, uh, this disciple is also mentioned as the first to recognize the significance of the empty tomb. At the Sea of Tiberias, he was the first one who identified Jesus on the shore and reported to Peter, it is the Lord. He is linked with Peter in several important episodes reported in Acts. He was even a prominent member of the Jerusalem church when Paul visited it later. Nothing further is known about John until according to church tradition, related chiefly through Irenaeus, but with many corroborating witnesses, he was bishop at Ephesus. Nothing further is known about John. Nothing further is known. Where, where is John? I mean, he was actually there when Jesus died. Where, where, where is he after Acts 8? Could it be that the reason why John is not in the Acts narrative and in the unfolding narrative of Christianity exploding is because he was busy taking care of Jesus' mom. Okay, so, so if you're John, here's what's going on, okay? You're the first one, one of the first ones to spot Jesus. Uh, you were there, you were one of three at the Mount of Transfiguration. You were, one of the, you were the only disciple recorded to witness Jesus dying. You were the first one to determine the significance of the, uh, the empty tomb. And then you're there, you see Jesus in the flesh when he's ascended. And then the Holy Spirit falls and you're present. Christianity is exploding. And there you are, busy taking care of Jesus's mama. For how many years? Five years? 10 years? 15 years? 20 years? Do doing what? Uh, helping feed her, getting the groceries for her. Dare I say, um, help her use the bathroom. Like, I just wonder if John was in this place where he ever felt like, Jesus, do you, do you kind of know what you're doing in the whole group? You know who I am. I, I humbly titled myself the one that Jesus loves. Uh, this is not where I'm supposed to be seated. You're... There's someone else who can, I should be out there doing radical uh, spirit empowered to the glory of God, kingdom ministry. I should be where Peter and, and put, put Andrew here. He's so quiet. No one even talks about him in the gospels. And yet here you have John, a key 
prominent apostle. And he's almost hindered, limited in what he's able to do because he's taking care of Jesus' mama. You see, I wonder if um, this is where some of us are kind of this morning. We, we kind of empathize and we sympathize with John. Like some of us, you, you have aging parents. You have an aging mom or a dad. And it's put you kind of in this weird seat, a seat that I don't even fully understand yet, where you want to help them. You want to be there for them. But it is, it is very difficult but it's a huge responsibility. And there are times when, when you, feel, you feel guilty for even feeling burdened. Like, well, why do I even feel, it's my mom, it's my dad. It's, why do I even, and, and you, you gather here as a church and there's all this announcement about, oh, you need to serve here and do that. And you're, you're like, oh, that's, that's, where my, that's where my heart is. That's where I want to go. And you, you feel this hindrance, like you can't fully walk into that. For others of us, we might not have aging parents. We actually ourselves might be aging because of young kids. Uh, Because you wake up in the morning and it is chaos. I mean, can the kids please keep their pants on for five minutes, right? And you're just having a hard time even reading your Bible, like once a week, because it is chaos. You want to. You want to walk into these passions but there are these responsibilities. Some of us, we work a nine to five. And, and some of the, the, the funds that we receive, like it's not even all for us. We're helping our mom or our dad. Others of us were in school and we're like, why does this even matter? Why am I even learning this? I, I could be going overseas right now. Isn't that where all the action is? Why do I have to sit in this classroom? And I wonder if there's this place where we just feel this tension between our our passions and our responsibility. And and we can see, I know I'm supposed to surrender and delight in the Father and and love God and love other people, but, but the tension is, aren't some things more important than other things? Like, shouldn't I, why does this matter? Shouldn't I be pursuing that thing over there? And there's this conflict in our hearts. Where do we go? What do we do? Well, um, I think from the life of John, there are two things that we can glean. Two things. Here's the first one. I think the first thing that we can glean is that maybe God actually wants to elevate our view of the ordinary. He wants to elevate our view of the ordinary. You know, for us, don't we have these categories of like, here's ordinary ministry that God wants us to do. And now here's extraordinary ministry that God wants us to do. But, but I wonder if maybe God wants to kind of break those categories altogether. And in fact, I don't know if John the apostle had these categories for himself. Here's how we can know this. You notice that when Jesus is like, son, behold your mother. You notice that he does not go, uh, just, Jesus, you know, if we did the spiritual gifts inventory, you know what my strength finders is, right? In fact, I, I did this one assessment and you have no idea how gifted I am in these capacities. Like, you, you sure you don't want to ask? I know the other disciples have fled. I could call them. You know, he does not do that. There's not a single time in the book of Acts where he shows up like, hey, just 
letting everyone know I'm still here. Okay, all right, bye guys. Never. Now you might be saying, you're arguing from silence. You can't do that. Yes, I may be arguing from silence, but his actions said that he took Jesus' mom home from that very hour. So his actions actually spoke much louder than any silence or words. How could John have done that? It may be because for John, when he saw Jesus' mom, he didn't just see this, she's this elderly woman that I have to, oh my gosh. Maybe he didn't view her that way. Maybe instead when he saw her, he saw her as, this is a human being made in the image of God. Wonderfully, fearfully fashioned together by God in the womb. And, And are you saying that I have the opportunity to walk with her? until glory. You're saying, I can walk with her until she sees Jesus again. Are you kidding me right now? Maybe when he saw her, he didn't just see an old woman, but but he actually, there was something divine. He saw the fingerprints of God on her. Maybe for John, a person was just not ordinary. Maybe for John, a person was somewhat extraordinary because it was God who had created them in his own image and fashioned them together. See, I'm so glad that John was able to elevate his view of the ordinary. We have a hard time doing that, don't we? Right? Like, you know, uh, for those of us who work nine to five, um, aren't we surrounded by extraordinary God-imaged people every single day? Now, I I know what some of us are thinking. You have no idea how annoying they are. You have, they're horrible, they slander, they gossip, they're, they're trying to you know, climb over me and get the next promotion. What a, what a fantastic sphere to love someone radically. Others of us might be like, okay, I work in a cubicle. You know how many people I talk to every day? Three, that's my family members. I don't interact with people, I don't. You know, there's so much that uh, I, I feel like we can glean from church history. Um, Lutheran tradition, Lutheran tradition, you know what they said about work and vocation? They described it as the fingers of God. Why? Because their tradition said that God's providence, like his love, in his love, he provides through vocation, through work, through the fingers of God, through people. So how does God heal? The Lutheran tradition would say, would ask. Through doctors. How does God educate? Through teachers. How does God provide fresh bread? Through 85 degrees. No, no, but, but, but seriously, I just wonder sometimes if we, we view our work as this, I just need to kind of get through it and it's just paperwork and it's just sending emails and, and I just wonder, wait, do we need to elevate that view of Ordinary. Maybe, maybe in God's eyes, it's a little bit more than that. That we can actually help people, love other people, and, and do it in a way where we're, we're loving God. And we become the strange beacon of, who are you? What are you about? Isn't it odd, though, that uh, we, we almost want to bypass human beings? To We, we want to bypass loving others in one context that we might love God and love others in another context? Isn't that strange how we can, in our efforts to love some people, we'll actually dehumanize the very people that are in front of us. Isn't that odd? 
You know, I heard this uh, Cly, uh, our youth guy, and I, we were talking this week about this sermon. He's always trying to steal my, my info before I preach. It just drives me nuts. Now, um, but we were talking about this sermon, and he told me the story, and I'm just relaying it to you about, uh, he said when he was in seminary, uh, that there was this man who was in his kind of mid-40s, and he was also starting seminary, uh, mid-40s. And this man shared how when he was in his young 20s, he actually wanted to go into seminary and, and be a pastor. But at that time, uh, his mom uh, came down with Alzheimer's. And so, you know, his brother got married off. And so he, he pretty much put seminary on hold and took care of his mom for 20 years. Didn't get married. Served in the local church and took care of his mom. And his mom passed away. And now mid-40s, he was starting seminary. And, and Kai was telling me how this man said, yeah, you know, I, I know it's already kind of like, it's kind of late for me. He was like, you know, all my friends, like they're, they're all like lead pastors and stuff. And so I, I don't know what God has for me. And, and I just, when he told me that story, I just thought, man, man who's, who's the radical one? I, I mean, like, you know, pastors, like, do we do radical ministry? Yeah, may, maybe. But what about that man? Sure, it may not look like the way that we would celebrate and praise. They, that person may never be invited to speak at a conference. But I, I just wonder if in God's eyes, it was incredible worship. See, I, see, I, I realize not everything is equal. Like p- things don't have equal impact, right? They don't. That, that's why even the apostles, they had to turn over tabling uh, to others that they might pray and preach because they understood we're apostles, the impact that we're going to do is praying and preaching. That's what we got to do. So I'm not saying everything has equal impact, but maybe in God's eyes, everything has equal worship value. That if you will walk into faith with a heart of love for God and for that person, whoever that person may be, that maybe that is just as pleasing to God as the bread maker. And I just wonder if this morning, if God is trying to elevate our view of the ordinary, that the person that you're interacting with, that the hindrance points, maybe it's a little bit beyond and more spectacular and extraordinary because God is there. There's something that God is trying to do. Here's the second thing, is that if there is extraordinary service, if, if there is extraordinary service, God trains us for it through the ordinary. Through the ordinary, he trains us for the extraordinary. How do I know this? Because of John. Now, we need to talk about, here we go. Let's have some fun. So if you ever read, if you ever study John in the gospels, he's a character. Uh, He's a fireball. You know how I know this? Jesus calls him and his brother, uh, sons of thunder. When Jesus calls you a son of thunder, that means you have anger issues. And he does. Uh, They go to a certain region. They reject Jesus. And he's like, Jesus, should we call down fire from the skies? And Jesus is like, ah, son of thunder, I pray for thee, um, right? He's a fireball. In fact, a, a lot of his literature, it, it's very black and white. He contrasts light and darkness and Christ to antichrist. You're either born again or you're of the devil, right? He just, he's very, like, a, like a, an older millennial like me, I would not do well with John, right? I'd be like, gray matters. And he'd be like, fireball from the skies for you, Okay. But here's what's fascinating is uh, if you read, and in a couple of weeks, we're going to start First John. But if you read First John, it is just the weirdest, oddest thing. Because he's like, dear children, love one another. 
It's the weirdest. You're like, is this guy the, the son of thunder? He's like, beloved, the father has lavished love on you. In fact, I, I love this one backhanded compliment from one uh, Bible scholar. Uh, one dictionary says about John, Christian maturity <laughs> brought a measure of gentility to his natural sanguine temperament so that he became preeminently the apostle of love as his first epistle bears witness. Don't you love that? Yeah, he, uh, as he matured in Christ, he became a little bit more gentle. Don't you love that backhanded compliment? How did he go from son of thunder to the apostle of love? How did he go from wanting to call down fire from the skies on an entire region of people to this protective, dare I say, motherly instinct for the church? Maybe it was because he hung out with Jesus' mom. Maybe the gentility of an elderly woman rubbed off on him. It, and it, it's almost as if, and I'm just guessing here, it's almost as if God was saying, all right, here's the, the church plan. You, you guys ready? Uh, John, hold off. I'm going to save you for about three decades. Go take care of my mom. Um, you, apostles, your front lines, go for it. Plant churches, write scripture, have at it. Then they all died. And it was as if God was like, hmm, let's see. Um, I need someone who's tough, but also like there's a tenderness. Let me check on John. Oh, he's ready. He's medium rare. Like the time has come for him to now. Hey, John, guess what? Um, you are now the movement leader. Go for it. And he was ready. So he comes out of the gates and everyone's like, look, it's the son of thunder. And he's like, love one another. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? Who needed who more? Did Jesus' mom need John? Or maybe John needed Jesus' mom? Oh, and by the way, who got Revelation, the last book of the Bible? John. Can I just propose a theory? If you can, if for Jesus, because you know, Revelation says it's a revelation about him. I, I just feel like maybe for Jesus, if you're faithful with his mom, you can also be entrusted to take care of his vision. But if you're going to bypass Jesus' mom to do something else, why would Jesus entrust the vision to John? He's like, you, don't even, you, you didn't even love my mom. And I'm, so I'm going to give you a vision. I'm going to give you something spectacular when you, can, when you can even love her every day. But maybe Jesus felt comfortable like, I can trust this guy because he led my mom to glory. You, you know, God's uh, training mechanism is the everyday parts of difficulty. You know what I call it? I call it the, uh, the difficult ordinary. It's the, the, the places where we're like, oh, this is really difficult. Every single day, really? That, that's where God trains us. He's done this all throughout the Bible. You know Moses? You know how God trained Moses? You know he was 40 years in the wilderness? It's not new. He was 40 years in the wilderness before that, taking care of sheep. That, that's, right? Like Moses was not like, hey, has anyone seen my hydro flask? No, he knew how to handle the wilderness. He wasn't like, oh, my nails are hurting. No, he, he was a rugged man being out in the wilderness for 40 years by himself with sheep. So the next 40 years, they weren't that different. It was just more people. You know, uh, King David, you know how God trained King David? He was anointed as king for 20 years. He wandered in the wilderness, running for his life with 400 rugged men. That's a really frustrating installment strategy, right? You're anointed as king, wait 20 years, run for your life. But why? How could David 
lead a nation of disgruntled people if he could not even sympathize with the lowly? How could he lead armies if he could not even lead 400 men himself? Paul, you know, we're like, oh my gosh, he's amazing. After his conversion, he goes up to Arabia. How long? Three years. No one hears about him. Three years of silence. That, that was his seminary. His professor was the Holy Spirit. Acts 6, Stephen, uh, I'm sorry, Acts 7, Stephen, he's the first martyr of the church. Do you know what he's doing in the chapter previous? Waiting tables. There's something about how if someone can faithfully wait tables, maybe that will translate over into their faithfulness when things get rocky. How about Jesus himself? Maybe there's a correlation of all those years of breaking, molding, and shaping as a carpenter that led and transferred over into the way that he would mold and break and shape those disciples. I guess what I'm trying to say is that if, if you want God to do something extraordinary through you, there's got to be something that happens extraordinary in you. And how God does something extraordinary in you is by placing you around ordinary. Ordinary. What is your difficult ordinary this morning? What is that thing where you're like, oh my gosh, if I could just break out of this, it would just be, I'd be free to really pursue what I really want to. What is that thing? Have you ever considered that that might be God's gift to you? That he's trying to do something profound in you. That he might do something profound through you. And not just that, but that in the very difficult ordinary, he's actually trying to minister to God-imaged people in and through you right now. Now, maybe I can crack my life open a little bit uh, and, and just kind of share how this is playing out in my own life. Um, I was talking to my wife this week about this, but, you know, I've really been surprised uh, by the things that I'm kind of discovering about myself. And, you know, as we kind of grow older, there's like, well, I didn't know that about myself. I didn't realize actually how driven that I am as a person. Um, I didn't know that about myself, but it's something that I'm, I'm still surprised by, right? Uh, I am restless a lot. I, I'm getting 4.30, 5 a.m. Like, let's get the day started. Go, 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 go. Uh, if, I'm, if I get to the church office and, you know, someone beat me, to it first, I'm like, dang it. Uh, and right, and I like maximizing time and go move. Uh, I, I get judgmental. If a peer pastor of mine wakes up at 7 a.m., I'm like, just stay home, bro. It's too late. The day's over, right? I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just really surprised, okay? Now, can I just be on? You know what is kryptonite for me right now? Young children. Young, beautiful children <laughs> in the Lord. <laughs> um, in fact, there's this one pastor that I was talking to this week who's beyond his 30s. And he was, he was just trying to encourage me. He was like, oh yeah, when I was in my 30s with the young kids, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't do, now I, I it's like, life is awesome. And I was like, thank you for the encouragement, <laughs> brother, right? And um, because, you know, like, there, can I just say this? There's never been a single time where my daughter was like, whoa, dad, I, you know, I was gonna, you're, you have a lot on your plate right now, right? Okay, I'm just gonna, um, I'll feed my older brother. Why don't you, you know, why don't you just head back to the office I'll take care of everything. Like that, that conversation has never happened. In fact, there's not even like a, oh, wait, like that doesn't, that doesn't even exist. It's just, in fact, my daughter just blatantly lies to me. 
She will flat out lie to my face. She'll say, poo-poo. And so I'll run across the room and I'll open her diaper and there's, there's nothing. And so I'm like, you just, you, you wasted energy. That could have been, you know, like that was precious. I have limited energy. Now I need to sleep like 30 more seconds to recoup that. I, I'm struggling here. And um, uh, just to be really honest, there are days when it, it's, it's really tough uh, because I have this go, go, go uh, nature. I love to achieve and get things done. And I finished, it's only Tuesday and I already got this much done. And uh, I, I, I'm, I need, I have issues, um, right? But, but here's, here's what I'm discovering in the difficult ordinary. I'm amazed sometimes when, I'm, when the kids are running amok. There are times when I will sit there and God will actually minister to me. There are times when um, I'll be like, man, like my son is running so fast. Like his sister can't catch up to him right now. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's exactly how I'm leading right now. I'm, I'm like, I'm like encouraging all the four-year-olds to run. And I've totally neglect the one-year-olds. And so I'll actually go back and change the way that I do certain things. But even more profoundly, you know when I see these young kids, are they not made in the image of God? Like I get a front row seat in terms of discipling them that I might display God the Father to them imperfectly, but the best way that I know how. And so for me, my ordinary difficult, aka my children, it's God's profound grace and gift to me. Just honestly, there are days it's really, really hard. And, and this is where I look. And I wonder if this is where John looked time and time again when he struggled. Do you know where he got the command, behold your mother? It was when he was looking up at Jesus, crucified on a stick of death for his own sins. And I wonder if John understood that just like how for Jesus, the hour of his glory was through self-denial and death, maybe John also understood that if he really wants to glorify God, it also requires his self-denial and death, that he also takes up his cross, deny himself, and that's what brings glory to God. And maybe when we bypass self-denial, when we don't pick up our cross, to glorify God, maybe that's vain glory and empty glory. But maybe it's that as we pick up our crosses every day in the spheres that God has placed us, that becomes our little tiny hours of glory where God is displayed as beautiful and spectacular and wonderful. So living hope, your difficult ordinary, it's God's gift to you. It's his gift to you. And may you believe this morning that in the difficult ordinary, there's profoundly extraordinary things happening inside you and through you. Let's pray. I want to give you a moment talk to your father. What is your difficult ordinary?
What is the, the sphere, the location where it's almost like a hindrance? What is that place? Will you surrender to your father right now for that aspect? And surrender could even just mean, God, give me strength. God, help me to pick up my cross. Help me to deny myself. Help me. We cry out to him. Seek him.